As always, it's a privilege to be with you and, and a joy to be with you week by week to look to God's Word together. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. To Luke chapter 11, this morning we're going to begin to look at a text that uh, is well known to you and to all of us as the Lord's Prayer. And as we look at this text, um, uh, we'll actually take this, uh, this text uh, over the course of two weeks. So I'll read the first 13 verses, but don't be surprised that I uh, stop my comments around verse 4, and we'll take up uh, our comments again next week. I do want to spend this week and, um, and next week thinking a good deal about prayer, about how we pray as individuals, how we pray as a church, how we, um, uh, how we might approach the Lord together and become a praying church, uh, even as we become praying people. So if you found your place then in Luke chapter 11, would you follow along with me as I read verse 1 through verse 13? Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend? who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. He will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. For the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Father in Heaven, You indeed are a giver of good gifts. You indeed are the source of all good things that we have. And You invite us to pray to You and to come to You as Father. This is a gracious privilege, Lord, and may we not take it for granted. So we pray, Lord, that You would give us this good gift. Give us the Holy Spirit today, O oh Lord, as we come to your word, to guide us, to impress upon our hearts your word, to make us to love you with a deeper affection, to make us to worship you with a more singular focus, to make us to see Christ and what he's done for us, both in the preaching of the word today and as we remember his sacrifice for us around the Lord's table. Father, we thank you that you hear us that you do answer our prayers when we pray according to your will. You grant us what we ask for. You indeed are the one who gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And so we ask you now, Lord, to send the Spirit to enlighten our minds, to soften our hearts, that we may receive your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let me begin with this question, simple question. Why is it that we do not pray? I have two reasons that I want to propose to you. I, I think I can safely assume that prayer is difficult for all of us. It's difficult for me from day to day to exercise this spiritual discipline in my life to regularly go to the Lord in prayer. And I think that it's probably true for many of you, even as I've heard that same thing from many of your testimonies. I wonder then, why is it that we don't pray? And I want to propose these two answers. The first is, I think that we feel that we don't know how. That prayer requires a certain kind of expertise that we have to learn, and we feel we have not learned it. Usually, we, gain, we start to feel this way because we see others engaged in prayer. Now, in virtually every religion, prayer is a key way in which people show their faithfulness, in, w- in which they express their piety. Christianity is not different in that respect. The difference is that we pray to the living God. We pray to Him in accordance with how He's revealed Himself in the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. So we can trust that our prayers are indeed heard. And yet when we look at people both outside of the Christian church and within the Christian church, we sometimes see people who their prayers seem like an elaborate show in one way or another, and we think, well, I don't know how to do that, and so I'm afraid to even try. They seem to know something that I don't know. Either they go through a number of motions externally, and we look at that and say, well, that's what true prayer looks like, but I don't know how to do that, so I'm afraid to do it. Or we hear the way they articulate their prayers, and we think, oh, how could I ever learn to speak like that? God would never listen to me. And even when we come to Scripture and we read the prayers, for instance, if you go to Daniel chapter 9 or Exodus chapter 30. 2 through 34, and you see the prayer of Daniel and the prayer of Moses and the prayer of others throughout history, and you see how they prayed is just amazingly articulate. And I could never do that. So we feel in not knowing how, we should not even start. Then there's a worse reason, or I say worse in the sense that it's, uh, it flows from a more cynical attitude that might cause us not to pray. This week, this week we'll focus on that first reason, I think, and the next week we'll focus on the second reason, but we're going to speak a little bit to it this week, the cynical attitude that might prevent us from praying. We might uh, describe it under two terms, futility and fatalism. What do I mean? I, I mean that sometimes we think, why bother praying? If God is almighty, if God is uh, all-knowing, if He is all-powerful, and He's going to certainly do His will, He's sovereign in this universe over everything, Well, what's the point if he's just going to do what he's going to do? Why should I engage in prayer? That's the expression of futility. What's the point? And the second reason, an expression of fatalism, which kind of goes with it, is uh, it's more personal in the sense that you say to yourself that uh, I prayed so often and it seems that God doesn't answer my prayers. I can't seem to get it right. I don't seem to ask for the right things or doesn't seem to happen the way I expect it to happen. So once again, we ask ourselves, why should we bother? So at best, we think of prayer as a skill to be learned, and at worst, we think of it as a meaningless duty that we must perform. Now, next week, we'll come back to that second issue of the meaningless duty with a clearer focus. But I do want to address it this morning, not with logical arguments, not by delving deep into philosophical arguments about God's sovereignty and the relationship that that 
to our agency and our responsibilities before him, but rather to show you by way of examples and then by the instruction of our Lord that we ought not to think of prayer in this way. You see, what's happening when we think in this way, whether we think of it as a skill to be learned or as a meaningless duty we must perform, we're thinking of prayer as a duty primarily, a chore that must be done. But I want you to see this morning from the text before us and from Luke's broader presentation of praying people that prayer is neither a duty by which we prove our faithfulness nor a necessary step to achieving our hopes and dreams, but it is a privilege and an opportunity that is afforded to us whereby we can speak with God as our Father as we make our requests known to Him. It's an opportunity for communion. It's an opportunity to express the intimacy of a relationship that we enjoy through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I said I want to start by looking at examples. And here, for those of you who've been with us as we've gone through Luke over the course of most of this past year, in the last year, I want to remind you of some of the examples of prayer that we've seen along the way. For those who haven't been here for the whole series, you'll be familiar with many of these. It takes us right back to the beginning of Luke's Gospel, to Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, in the birth narrative surrounding the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of our Lord. You can turn there or you can listen to me as I remind you of those things that we encountered. But first I want to draw you to example of two people in one group who were engaged in prayer in some way at the beginning of this gospel. And what I want to learn from this particular example, or what I want us to learn, is that these examples teach us the importance of patience and perseverance as we pray. We're going to see that from an example of a praying generation. Just a couple of verses I draw your attention to in their context. First, in Luke 1.10, here in the context, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, though he's not yet a father, goes into the temple. He's a priest, and it's his time to serve and to offer incense. And we find in verse 10 that the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And then appears to him Gabriel, who sent to him with a message. As we scan down the page to verse 13, we read, But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And then turning a little bit further, a couple pages into Luke chapter 2 before I draw these examples together. About a year or two later, Luke chapter 2 and verse 37, there we find that we, a lady named Anna. She's a prophetess, and she's in the temple when Jesus is brought to the temple as a child. We read, beginning in verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, that is of Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And as I draw these examples together in this praying generation, what I want you to see is that there were people and two examples of people who made it their regular habit to pray. Although in Zechariah's case, we might surmise that he had probably stopped praying for a son by this point in his life. But here Gabriel comes to him to tell him that some prayer that likely to Zechariah was long forgotten, was not forgotten to the Lord, that that prayer was answered and it was going to be answered miraculously in his old age in a way that was better than he could imagine. He was just hoping for an heir, just hoping for a child. 
God was going to give him the forerunner, a son who would be the forerunner of the Christ. And then we see in Anna, a person who is very concerned with the redemption of God's people, the redemption of Jerusalem, the salvation of his people. And we can assume that those people who were outside the temple at the time when Zechariah went in to offer sacrifices, who were devoting themselves also to prayer, those people were thinking along the same lines, along God's purposes, along God's, what God would do. And they were part of many generations who were surely praying that God would bring to fulfillment all of the promises that He had made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, through Moses, through all the prophets over the course of thousands of years. They were praying along those lines, probably even praying the words of Scripture from the Psalms and elsewhere. They were a praying generation. And I draw your attention to these people, some who were very old, some who were doing what their parents and their grandparents and generations prior to them had been doing. Because we have a long space of time where people are praying along the same lines for God to fulfill His promises, some in very individualized ways, some in corporate ways for the whole people of God, and yet they're turning their attention to things that God had not yet done and praying for the fulfillment of those things with perseverance and with patience. And they were not uh, unheard by the Lord. The Lord heard their prayers. And as Luke takes up this narrative of his gospel, he begins to narrate the way in which God brought to fulfillment those things which he had promised as an answer to the prayers of persevering people. So what do we learn from that example? We learn that we likewise should be patient and persevere as we pray according to what God has revealed to us of His will in Scripture. And some of the time, those prayers will be individualized, very individual in nature, as with Zechariah. Yet we ought to pray and we ought to persevere. That doesn't mean that every barren husband and wife will necessarily get the children that they pray for. But it does mean that we ought to be patient and we ought to persevere and recognize that very often when God says no to the thing that we request... It's because, in fact, I would say always, when he says no to the thing that we ask for specifically, it's because he has something better in store for us, just as with Zechariah. We learn from that praying generation to persevere. Another example as we turn forward in the pages of Luke and remind ourselves of where we've been is in Luke 5. Luke 5, and there in the context, there's a series of challenges that come toward to Jesus from the Pharisees and from others. We come in the midst of one of those challenges in verse 33. We read, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. So do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. What the people who come to Jesus are noting is that when they look at John the Baptist and his disciples, and they look at the Pharisees and their disciples, they see externally the same course of action in their prayers. They pray with fasting, and it's evident to all. What Jesus is going to show them in his response is that for the, for in, in the case of his disciples, such an attitude would not be appropriate. He's not saying that it's never right to fast. He's not saying that it's never right to assume a certain posture externally when we pray, to kneel or to stand or to lift our hands or to bow our heads. All of those things are things that may be appropriate in different contexts. But what he is showing is that those things are not the essential aspect of prayer, those things on the outside. I think I can fairly suggest to you that the Pharisees, when they prayed, their heart was in a very different place than John the Baptist when he prayed. Externally, they looked like they were doing it the same. 
But when we look at John and we look at his broader ministry and we look at the Pharisees and their broader engagement with Jesus, we see two very different hearts. And yet externally they looked the same. What we're seeing there then in that text and as Jesus then would respond to them by saying that it would not be appropriate in that particular context for his disciples to fast when they are in the presence of him. What we see is that prayer is primarily a matter of the disposition of our hearts not primarily a matter of what we do externally. And again, it doesn't mean that we should not do anything externally when we pray. It doesn't mean we should never fast or that we should always fast. But it means that the most important essential matter of prayer is how we approach God in our internal disposition. And you can't see that on the outside. I can't see that when you pray. You can't see that when I pray. But God who searches the heart, He knows that. He can see that. And we learn from that example then from John and from the negative example that, it, that builds over the course of this gospel and the Pharisees, that prayer, first and foremost, is a matter of how our heart is directed towards our Lord. And finally, there's this example that is most important in Luke's gospel, which is Jesus himself. And it leads us right up to our text in Luke chapter 11. When we look at the example of Jesus, what we're going to see is the priority of prayer in his life. We're also going to learn the joy that should attend our prayers as we commune with our Heavenly Father. Because that's the example that Jesus sets for us as He Himself prays. What I'm going to do to you is just do for you is just to read you a string of texts that we've seen already in Luke's Gospel. I just want you to listen because I do want you to appreciate how frequently Luke draws attention to the prayers of Jesus and the way He prays, especially at key moments in His Gospel. In Luke 3, verse 21 and 22, we read these words. Now when the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We see this intimate communion between the Father and the Son, this great revelatory moment when God declared from heaven in a public way, This is my beloved Son and saying it in a personal way, you are my beloved son. And what is Jesus doing in that moment? He is praying. Luke 5, 15 and 16, we see that Jesus also regularly withdrew to pray. But now even more, the report about him went abroad after he's healed a leper. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. We see the priority that he placed on prayer in his life. Even when people clamored to be healed and to come to him, he prioritized prayer. And again, in Luke 6, he taught his disciples the importance of prayer and how to pray and the disposition that is appropriate in prayer. In Luke 6, 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. And then, earlier in that same chapter, before he preached that message when he was about to call the twelve apostles in Luke 6. We read in these days, in verse 12, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called the disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. In Luke 9, 18, again, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Right before that great moment when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus was found praying, just as he was found praying all night before he appointed the twelve apostles. Before the transfiguration, this great 
Moment of revelation in Luke 9, 28 through 29. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And there God would say, the God the Father would say very much the same thing that he said at his baptism. This is my beloved son. And he would tell the disciples, listen to him. Again, he instructed his disciples in Luke 10, verse 2, saying, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And then in this beautiful example that we've recently considered in Luke 10, 21, where Luke doesn't say that Jesus is praying, he shows us him praying by recording the very words that he prays. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And what can we draw from all of this as we reflect upon the prayer life of Jesus as Luke has presented it to us? We can see that there is a priority to prayer in his life. It's more important than even sleep. It's more important than the crowds clamoring to be healed. His joyful priority is to commune with his Father, And as a man in his incarnate life, the way in which he does that is prayer. And as he teaches us to pray, pray particular things, pray for particular needs, in accordance with God's purposes, in accordance with God's priorities, we see that we are likewise called to pray and to enter into this communion as Jesus himself has taught us. And we recognize that he is a most qualified teacher, the most qualified teacher, We can learn to pray as we have been doing some of the men in gathering and looking to the prayers of Paul. We can learn to pray by going to the Old Testament and seeing the prayers of Daniel and the prayers of Moses and many other great godly men in Scripture. We can learn to pray by looking to the examples of godly women too, like Mary and Elizabeth, the way in which they praised the Lord. But the supreme example, the most qualified teacher, is the Son of God Himself. What I'm saying to you is this, is we are taught how to pray by the prayers of the one who is able to answer all of our prayers. Do you understand that when we look at Christ and we recognize that He is the Son of God, we recognize that He is one who can hear and answer all our prayers, and yet He came as a man and lived like us and prayed to God the Father so that we might learn how to pray as the very Son of God prays as the way He prayed in His incarnate life. He is the most qualified teacher. The first lesson that we learn simply from His example is that He shows the joyful priority of prayer. It's not a chore. It's not a duty. It's not a way in which we prove our faithfulness or our piety. It's a privilege that God has granted us through Jesus Christ. And He's called us to engage in that privilege. So we're not surprised then at the beginning of chapter 11 when we see that one of his disciples comes to him and says, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. We reflect on how John taught his disciples to pray with fasting, and yet Jesus is going to show them a much simpler, a humbler way in which to approach God. They want to learn to pray, and I think many of you have that same sensibility. In fact, you've asked me these kinds of questions. How should we pray? What should we pray? Why doesn't God seem to answer my prayers? What's the point in praying? If God is sovereign, 
Well, Jesus here teaches us to pray and shows us the importance of prayer and the priority of it. Calls us to, to, to come into this relationship with God and express that relationship through our prayers. And the way he does it is with what we can call the model prayer. We're going to spend the rest of our time focusing on each word or line of this model prayer here in verses 2 through 4. And let me simply, simply read it as Luke presents it to us. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. That's it. Now, you probably know that this is a simpler version, uh, uh, a shorter version of something we find in Matthew. You probably have the words of that prayer in Matthew memorized. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We recite that together. We probably, most of us, have that memorized. But what I want you to see is that it's a model prayer. Jesus does not just simply give us this prayer as something to be recited. That would fly in the face of what we find in Matthew chapter 6 right before he introduces that prayer. For Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, he tells those who are hearing him speak, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles who think they will be heard for their many words. And if we just make this a thing that we recite that is meaningless and we think that somehow just simply by reciting these words we will be heard, we don't even know what these words are meant to tell us or meant to say to God. They have no meaning. They become nothing more than empty phrases. But if we recognize that this gives us a clear and concise model that can structure our prayers, we see that Jesus has given us a very simple way in order to come to God like a child coming to her father. It's a model prayer. And I want to show you how we can use that to follow the model as we pray. It begins with the word father, and that's crucial. That's important. We recognize that God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so we can speak of God the Father. But as we're going to see tonight, if you'll return with us, and we, we look to the beginning of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're also going to see that we are invited to call God our Father. God always has been the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God existing eternally in three persons. That's always been true, and so to say that God the Father has always been the Father, it makes perfect sense because God has always been triune. But He became our Father as we became His children through the new birth. To all who believed in Christ, John tells us at the beginning of his gospel, to them God gave the right to be called children of God, not those who were born of the flesh or of blood, but those who were born of the Spirit. We are children of God, and so we can approach God as Father. And we think of that contrast that we saw in the text we read from Exodus, the fearfulness that Israel must have had as they approached God at the mountain, seeing Him display His awesome power. I'm sure the last thing on their minds was to think he is our father. Yes, he is God Almighty. Yes, he is Lord. Yes, he is the great I am. But they were fearful and they sought a mediator. Moses was not sufficient to be the final mediator. 
But we have a final and sufficient mediator in our Lord Jesus Christ, who came and became like us, and in our likeness humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? For our sins, for our sakes, so that in his death and in his rising, he might bring us through new life into the presence of God as children of God. That's the great and wonderful offer of the gospel. You can become a son of God, an heir of his promises through faith in Jesus Christ, and so you can approach him as your father. And you can pray to him simply that word, Father. That's what Jesus teaches us here, and it's a great privilege that anyone who has faith in Christ is offered. If this morning you're here and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, then I encourage you to think about this great, enormous privilege that is put before you this morning. Reflect upon that and consider whether or not now is the day, now is not the time for you to repent. I encourage you to see that today is the day. Repent of your sins, believe in the gospel, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. He did what was necessary to bring you into a relationship with God. Trust in that. Trust that his death is enough. That in his resurrection, he has guaranteed your eternal life and your future resurrection. For those of you who are trusting in Christ this day, recognize this glorious privilege that is given to you. That you can pray in this simple way, beginning with that one word, Father. Now, we go on to pray, hallowed be your name, which is a rather archaic word in English by this time, when it was first used in the King James English. I'm sure it was a common way of speaking. But what does hallowed mean? It means to set apart. It means to sanctify, to make something holy. What we're saying when we say, hallowed be your name, is, Lord, we want your name to be set apart. That is your reputation. Your, we want you to be glorified, is the idea. Hallowed be your name. We're starting to direct our attention, orient our perspective along a axis that is directed towards God and His glory and His purposes and away from ourselves. It's the first important step in prayer. And it will be part of the next line as well. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're praying that God will be glorified. How can we do this, practically speaking? This week I started working through the Lord's Prayer with my children, and I gave them some practical suggestions to go to the Psalms or to go to the other texts where we can look for things, and we can even just think of things in our mind, that only God has done and only God can do. And we can praise Him for those things that He alone can do and has done, and we can ask Him to do more of the same. And my children thought of things like creating a universe out of nothing. Can't think of any person who's done that lately. Only God can do that. Governing the earth and the heavens and all that exists. And we look then to the passage we read together in Psalm 86, and we see many, many examples. It's the reason why I chose that for our reading. If you look back at your bulletin, you see all of these things that only God can do, that only God has done. And we think of the things that only He has done, and praise Him for these things, and pray that others might, we pray that others might come to know Him as the only one who is God for those self-same reasons. Look at those words again from Psalm 86. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. 
All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Do you see how that's flip sides of a coin? There are things that only God can do and only God has done. And a declaration that the nations will indeed come and recognize that God is God. And we pray to that end, Lord, let that happen. Hallowed be your name. We're praying that God's name would be honored and glorified as people come to know him as the only true God. And along those same lines, then, we turn to that next line, your kingdom come. And here, we're praying along those same lines, but with a particular focus on God's kingdom. We're praying for big things when we pray, your kingdom come. But we need to understand, again, the definition of kingdom as Luke has said it before us. Here, you simply need to turn back to Luke chapter 8 and remember that parable of the sower, which I think many of you could recite or not recite, but maybe summarize by heart. You know the sower goes out to seed and he throws his seed on many different soils. Three of the four soils are no good, can't produce a crop that will last. But the final soil is good soil, and the seed grows and bears fruit. But there in Luke 8, verse 9, we find that this parable has a deeper meaning. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see. What God was teaching them was that the way in which the kingdom of God comes is by the proclamation of God's word. And as people hear God's word, and as people receive God's word in their hearts, and God's word produces in their lives fruit so that they become like that soil out of which a good crop grows, we see that the kingdom of God is coming. So when we say, let your kingdom come, we can think of specific ways that we can pray those words. When we pray for missionaries together, the pastoral prayer, or when you at your homes pray for friends who need to hear and believe the gospel, maybe family members who have heard the gospel and not just believed, you are praying, Lord, let your kingdom come, because the kingdom comes first in our hearts through the preached word, through the received word, as God causes his word to bear fruit in our lives and in the lives of others. So practically, we can, I can suggest that as you think of this line, your kingdom come, you can use that as a header, a subtitle, if you were, to write your prayers down. And you can think of people, friends, family members, churches, regions of our world, even nations and missionaries that are there, where you are looking for God to do a mighty work. And you can pray, let your kingdom come, Lord. And as you look at the trials that we face in this life, you can think of those final words of John in the Revelation when he says, come Lord Jesus. And see that that is also a prayer that God's kingdom may come. As you look at the difficulties in our lives and the evil and the sin, and you think the thing that will finally bring an end to us is the fullness of the kingdom as it comes with Christ's return. When we look to those things, we're praying that God's kingdom would come. And so, pray along those lines. Now notice these big prayers, that God's name will be hallowed, and that the kingdom might come, are oriented towards God's purposes and towards God's will. So we should look to his word and see there how he has said these things will come to fruition. How will his kingdom come? He has shown us in parables like the parable of the sowers, and in other passages as well. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> now we turn our attention 
to our own needs. He teaches us to pray, give us each day our daily bread. And here, it's a rather humble prayer. It's a rather meager prayer, it seems, at first, in respect to that great prayer, let your kingdom come. But I do want you to see some of the boldness in this prayer. There's a shift in the language. If I were to say something like, let us stand for this final hymn, it's a kind of polite invitation. If I say stand for the final hymn, it's a command. You say, well, that's spoken with some authority. There's a shift in this prayer as well. The first two things that we ask, Father, when we pray, let your kingdom come, let your name be hallowed, they come in that kind of polite way of request. But here they come as commands. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. These prayers are uttered with a boldness. And there's also something great about this prayer for provision, and the prayer that we'll see after it. It's one thing to say, Lord, give me enough so that I will have enough by the time I die. That's not what he teaches us to pray, but rather not to look too far ahead, but to trust that the Lord will continually provide. And what's implied in this prayer, which seems meager at first, is that we ought to regularly come into God's presence with daily prayer. If we're praying for daily bread, we ought to be praying daily. It implies a continual dependence upon God, and it points to God's continual provision. I think of the example of George Mueller, who some of you might know, who lived in the 19th century, right up to the end of the 1800s. And he was a man who started orphanages and schools, and in England he served more than 10,000 orphans over the course of his life. And he was a man who was devoted to daily and regular prayer and has so many testimonies. If you simply read a biography, I think we might have one on our back table, of George Mueller, you will see how many times he prayed for extraordinary things, ways where God might provide daily bread for these orphans. They didn't know how it would come from one day to another. And God provided in extraordinary ways. It can be an extraordinary thing to depend upon God for simply the needs of one day. And George Mueller, this Christian of a hundred years and more ago, is an example of that in his life and testimony. And so many others in Scripture and in our history as a church, as the church. And so this prayer teaches us to seek God's daily provision, not just bread, but those things that we daily need. We don't need to look down the road 10, 20, 30 years in our prayer. We rather are invited to come to him day by day, asking for that same thing. And so we ought to do so, not looking to enrich ourselves, again, not looking for our own glory, but looking towards God's glory. Then Jesus teaches us to, for, to pray, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive all who are indebted to us, everyone who is indebted to us. And here we recognize that we are sinners, and just as we need daily provision, we need to come to God regularly to confess our sins. Sins we know and sins we don't know. We daily stand in need of His forgiveness, as John taught us in his first letter. If we confess our sins, He is what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this should be the daily pattern of our life as Christians, that even as we pay, pray for our daily bread, we pray for God's forgiveness. But there's something that's attached to us, this which we must recognize. 
We should not expect God to forgive us if we refuse to forgive our brothers and sisters, our neighbors. This prayer is prayed with boldness and confidence on the premise that we are likewise forgiving those who are indebted to us. Sometimes for, even for Christians, it's very hard to forgive someone. I remember a pastor sharing a story about someone in his church who was wronged by someone else in the church, and she said, I will never forgive that person. This pastor's wife said, but perhaps this is a sign that you're not really a believer in Christ. She said, I don't care. I just will never, ever forgive. Sad thing to hear that kind of word from someone who hopes to be forgiven by our Lord and Savior. So if we have been so forgiven by Christ, we ought also always to forgive. And when we live in this way, we can pray with this confidence, O oh Lord, forgive us our sins. And if we feel that we are harboring some resentments, then begin with repentance over that. And as Jesus teaches us elsewhere, leave your gift at the altar, so to say, and be reconciled with your brother. And then come back and offer your gift. Lastly, Jesus teaches us saying, lead us not in temptation. And here, just as he reveals that it's God's will for us that we should be forgiven our sins and that we should be forgiving to others, he also reveals to us that it is God's will that we should be sanctified, that we should be set apart ourselves, that we ourselves should be made holy. Lead us not into temptation stands as a subtitle in that way. And you remember, if you've been with us in the evening, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what Paul said, this is God's will for you. And you sit on the edge of your seat and you think, I really want to know what God's will is for my life. And he says, your sanctification. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. If that's God's will, then should we not pray toward that end? Should we not pray that God would make us holy? But this comes slowly. We recognize and sometimes we despair and think, I've been praying that for a long time. And I don't seem to be growing in holiness. A dear friend of mine, an older gentleman, used to tell me that when I think like that, I just rem remember, this is just how bad I am. God is working at warp, warp speed. But let me give you something even more practical than that, because it is God's will that we should be sanctified. And yet it's also God's will that in this life, our sanctification should come by degrees, slowly but surely, not all at once, the all-at-once sanctification, that all-at-once glorification that will come, will come when Christ returns. But in the meantime, it's by degrees and it's slowly. Just as we need to pray daily for our bread and pray daily for forgiveness, we need to pray daily for God's sanctifying work in ourselves and in others. How can we do this in a way that is clear and easy? Let me simply direct you to Galatians 5, to a text that's helped me a great deal as I've thought about how to apply this in my life. We'll close with this. In Galatians 5, 16 and following, it's a text that's familiar to you, I think. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here we have this gracious promise, this declaration of truth. that The things that the Spirit wants are opposed. They're like oil to water the things that the flesh wants. And our heart, being one vessel, cannot contain both in a mixture, but one must press out the other. They're opposed to one another like oil and water. And so as God causes us to abound in the fruit of the Spirit, it 
presses out, it has expulsive power, as one has said. It presses out what is worldly in us. And so when we pray that God would lead us not into temptation, but sanctify us, rather, and deliver us from evil, we can turn to a text like Galatians 5, or we can remember in our mind the fruit of the Spirit are what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And as I tick down that list in my mind and I think about what I need in the very moment when I need God to work His sanctifying work, I tick down that list and I come to, I need joy right now. Or I need patience right now because I have children of a particular age. I go down the fruit of the Spirit and I say, this is a fruit of the Spirit. Not a fruit of Will Brown. Not a fruit of his intelligence or his discipline or his ability. I'm led to my knees and I say, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but cause your fruit by your Spirit to abound in my life. These are the things that Jesus teaches us to pray for. As we pray for God's kingdom to go forth, we're praying also for God's kingdom to come in our hearts through His gracious work of forgiveness and through His gracious work of sanctification. We're not ordering our thoughts towards big things that are to our glory. Even things that we might think in the moment, that's for the kingdom, is it not? Would, would I not like to see 100 people come in here next week? Actually, that would be a headache, I think, but... A hundred people come in, and then two hundred the next week, and a thousand the next week, and what would that be for? Would that be for the glory of God or for the glory of me, the glory of us? No, I put that aside, and I orient my focus around God's glory and His kingdom. Whatever it might mean for my life, I'm not building my own kingdom, but I am hoping to grow closer to God by His grace, through His forgiveness that's offered to me in Christ, through His sanctification that comes by the Spirit working in me. And I'm encouraged, and you're encouraged then too, by the one who is the most qualified teacher, that we can come to God, not with great shows of fasting or blasts of trumpets or empty words repeated one after another, but with the simple, humble, childlike prayer that Jesus here teaches us to bring to our, our Heavenly Father. As we approach our God, we can express our hopes, our fears, our sorrows, our needs, our desires, our very heart. We can make our requests known to Him, and He hears us. There are no elaborate directions, just simple childlike prayer. And as we depend upon God for His grace, we are also invited into His confidence, as it were, in some sense. Having been given the secrets of the kingdom, we're encouraged then to pray in accordance with those secrets that have been revealed to us. So let us be a praying church. Let us be a praying people, people who pray with boldness according to God's priorities, people for whom our greatest priority is not what we might like to have in this life, but that communion with God as our Father through Christ by the power of the Spirit that is offered to us right now. Let that be our chief priority so that prayer will not be a chore or a duty, but will be a privilege and a delight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, indeed we do treat prayer so often like a duty and a chore, and yet it should be a privilege. It should be our joy. It should be our delight, more important than sleep, more important than food. And even as we pray, Lord, you promise that you will give us our daily bread and encourage us to pray for that too. 
But what we need most and what we should desire in the most is communion with you, our Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit. So we pray, Lord, bring us into that communion by your grace as you forgive us our sins and as you sanctify us in your truth. We pray these things, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.